Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Lord, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Lord, that you have given us Jesus who gives us salvation, who gives us hope, who gives us grace, who gives us mercy, who gives us redemption. Lord, you sent your son, Jesus. He gave his life for our sins and then he gives us His righteousness. And Lord, that is an amazing gift. Lord, thank You for the Holy Spirit which You have given us to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to convict us, and to encourage us. Father, thank You for Your Bible. Lord, Your Word to teach us who You are and how we are to live. That we don't have to guess and we don't have to speculate and we don't have to make reasons for for who You are or, or think. But Lord, You have revealed Yourself perfectly to us as a gift. God, I thank You for this church. Every single person who is sitting in a chair or serving, Lord, they are a beautiful gift that You have given us. And Lord, I thank You for this Word today from Pastor James. It is a gift. And so let us receive this. Let us live this. Let us live all of our lives understanding of the blessing and the gratitude that we have, all because of Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So James... James has been a little tough. Okay, let's just, let's just admit that, get it out up front. James has been a little tough. Over the course of the last two or three months, we've talked about some of the most difficult subjects in the church. Things that we normally don't talk about, things that kind of make us a little bit uncomfortable. And so over the course of James, we've talked about doubt, we've talked about death, we've talked about trials, temptation, struggles, hardships. Over the course of this series, we've talked about things like racism, classism, sexism, We've talked about war and justice. We've talked about murder. We've talked about the words we say and the way in which we live. And so I know many of you have been reading ahead and you're like, man, James is pretty tough. And so you've been looking forward to this day because you know we're in James chapter 5 today. So you've been, you've been reading ahead. You've been looking ahead. You know that today we're going to talk about the favorite subject, your favorite subject to talk about in the church. And so you're really excited. So if you could do me a favor, go ahead and do this. Let me go ahead and hold up your Bibles. Okay, how many of you bring your Bibles to church? Okay, got some Bibles. Hold up your Bibles. Let me see your Bibles. Okay, if you did not bring your Bible, hold up your fake Bible on your phone. Okay, go ahead and hold up your fake Bible. Let me see it. Okay, this, this is God's Word. Okay, this Word tells us who God is, and it tells us who and how we are to live. And so, so we love God's Word. We trust God's Word. And so that's good. Keep your Bibles up. And now here's what I want you to do. Pull out your wallet. Go ahead, pull out your wallet. I'm not going to rob you. It's not a stick up. Okay, you're going to be okay. You're like, oh no, he's going to take an offering. Okay, yeah, we will later. But for now, go ahead, hold up your, let me see, got your Bible, got your wallet. Okay, good, good. Now I want you to put them together. And today, Pastor James is going to ask this question. Does the God of the Bible have any right to speak about your wallet? And so the bold words from Pastor James today is going to be ownership and stewardship. And you guessed it. Today, we're talking about money. And I know you're excited because you love it when we talk about money in the church. And really, the idea of stewardship, it is a major theme in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, there's several themes. Okay, First theme is there's the issue of sin. Now, God made Adam and Eve, our first parents, upright, holy, good, and true. And then they sinned and they separated themselves from God. And they rebelled, they fell, and subsequently, every single person who has ever lived, that's me, that's you, that's everyone in this room, is a sinner. And that we have sinned by nature and by choice. But God, in His passionate pursuit after His people, He longs for a reconciling relationship. And so God sends His Son, Jesus, to live the perfect life, to die the painful death in our place, so that way we may be forgiven of our, of our sins. And the second theme is that of suffering. That God's people are hurting and lost and broken, and so... So God sends the Holy Spirit, or God uses His people to bring healing, to bring health, to bring hope, to alleviate our suffering. And then the third one is that of stewardship. Now, this idea of stewardship, it appears 1,200 times in the Bible. And stewardship is this issue of what do we do with our time, our talents, and our treasures? How do we invest our dollars and days in strategic ways to bring glory to God and bring good to others? And so this idea of stewardship, it really explodes and it really unfolds throughout every single book over the entire course of the Bible. What do we do with our life? What do we do with our money? What do we do with our energy? What do we do with our investments? How do we live for the glory of God and for the good of others considering our dollars and our days? And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you are immediately thinking, oh no, 
Not another money sermon from another money-hungry church from another money-hungry pastor. I want to pause you right there. Okay, we don't want anything from you. Okay, we want something for you. And, and that's truly what our heart is. That, that we don't want anything from you. And so if that's your understanding, if that's your mindset about your money, go ahead and keep your money. Okay, but we're not doing this to get rich. Okay, if you need a confirmation for that statement, go to the bathrooms. Read the walls on the bathrooms. I mean, we're not in this to be rich. I mean, we meet in a bar in downtown Beaumont. Right? I don't have a jet parked out back. It's like, we don't really need your money. My 2010 Toyota Yaris is doing perfectly fine. It's taken more hits than Mike Tyson, but it's still, it's still doing fine. And, and so we're not in this for the money. We're, we're in this because of our heart. And, and, and generosity reveals the heart of God. And so we don't want anything from you, but we do want something for you. And we want for you to understand the Father heart of God, that God is generous. And so here at Redemption, we don't sh- shy away from talking about money. In fact, we, we, we talk about it because it's a core value for our church. That audacious generosity is a core value for who we are. That generosity determines the decisions that we make as a church. And so we don't shy away from talking about money. Pastor James is not going to shy away from talking about money. And that's because Jesus never shied away from talking about money. And in fact, one out of every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is teaching over, over money. Half of Jesus' parables are in regards to finances, to to stewardship. 25% of all of Jesus' red letters, he's talking to people about about their money, how they get it, how they save it, how they spend it, how they steward it, and how they give it. And here's the reason that Jesus talks about money so much. It's because there's nothing in your life that will cause as much anxiety, cause as much false sense of security, cause as much sense of identity, stress, worry, anxiousness, exhaustion, than the way you view your money. And, and so Jesus talks about it because Jesus is trying to get to your heart. And so this isn't a financial issue. This is a heart issue that has financial implications. And so, so Jesus talks about it. James talks about it. And today, we're going to talk about our, our stewardship. And, and so um, what you'll notice as we study through the book of James is that Pastor James repeats himself a lot. Okay, And we've been in this study for um, 13 weeks now. And so James oftentimes goes back to previous arguments that he's made as he's building his lesson out to the church. And so for us to better understand this, i got to go back into something James taught earlier in chapter 1. So in week 3 of our series, we discussed the four categories of wealth. Now, when we think about riches or wealth, we tend to think about it in two ways. There's the rich people, there's the poor people. That's the way that we normally see it because we think, we think politically, we think sociologically, we think economically that those are the rich people and those are the poor people. But the Bible doesn't see it that way. The Bible, there's actually four categories. There's rich, there's poor, but there's righteous and unrighteous. And that's the way that the Bible sees it. And I've been wanting to teach this to you and I'm really happy to teach this to you because when I first heard this, it changed my entire concept of, of wealth. And so, according to the Bible, there are, there are four categories. And I give this to you because I want you to think, which category am I? And so I want you to listen to it. I want you to, 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 to receive this. I want you to consider this. Which category best represents my life? And so, in the Bible, there's four categories. First is, there's the righteous poor. Now, is there anybody that you can think about in the Bible who is righteous, but are also poor? Plenty. So, we'll start in the Old Testament. You have women like Ruth and Naomi. Okay, they were immigrants. They were refugees. And they were very righteous and they were very, they were very poor. And then we can consider the prophets of the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Elijah, Jeremiah. Right? They spoke on behalf of God. But they were also very poor. And then you can move into the New Testament and ask the question, are there any righteous poor? Yeah, Jesus commends a widow because she gives her last two pennies. And, and Jesus says, for that reason, she is, she is very righteous. We see churches like the Church of Philippi in Macedonia who are commended nine times throughout the Bible because of their overflowing generosity in the midst of their extreme poverty. And so yeah, they were, they were very righteous, but they were also very poor. And then we have a man named Paul. Right? You ever heard of him? He's an apostle church planter traveling all across the ancient world, starting churches. He writes two-thirds of the Bible, and guess where he writes them from? Prison, yeah. So he was poor, but he was very righteous. Now, what about the righteous and the rich? Okay, is there anybody that you can think about in the Bible who is very godly, very righteous, but also happened to be wealthy and, and rich? Yeah, tons. Like Abraham, one of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. He was very rich. Job, very rich. He lost it all, but he got it all back. And so, yeah, Job, 
very rich. Joseph, who ascended to be the right hand of Pharaoh, so he would have been very rich. And so there's a lot of people in the Old Testament who are very rich, and they were also righteous. Now, what about in the New Testament? Okay, flash forward to the New Testament. Do we have the same people? Yes, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, upon Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, gives Jesus his tomb. He gives him his tomb in prophecy um, 500 years previously by a man named Isaiah said that Jesus would die and then he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And so Joseph of Arimathea gives Jesus his, his tomb because he was rich and he was, he was righteous. We also see people like Lydia in, um, in the New Testament who funds Paul's church planting ministry because she was very wealthy. She was a merchant and she used her wealth in ways that would bring worship because she was rich and she was righteous. Okay, now let's move over. The category number three. What about the unrighteous poor? Is there anybody, anybody in the Bible that you could think is unrighteous and poor? Okay, the book of Proverbs talks about a man called the sluggard. Okay, the sluggard is the guy who's devolving on the evolutionary scale. You can't tell where his butt ends and the couch begins because he refuses to work. That he's lazy. He refuses to get up. He refuses to get a job. He, he wastes his money on poor investments. He gambles it all away. He spends it all on drugs and alcohol. And he refuses to do anything. And so they, the Bible con, condemns him for being unrighteous and poor. Same thing in the New Testament. You have a man named Judas, which would have been one of Jesus' disciples. And as a disciple of Jesus, he'd have been poor. But Judas held on to the money bags of Jesus. He was the treasurer of the disciples. And so he got greedy because he was poor, and he sold Jesus out for 40 pieces of silver. To be honest, that's not a whole lot. So he was unrighteous, and he was, he was poor. So yeah, there's unrighteous poor people in the Bible. And then the last one is the unrighteous rich. Think about anybody like that? Yeah, in the Old Testament, again, plenty. So you have Pharaoh who oppressed the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. You have um, Xerxes in the book of Esther who oppressed the nation of Israel. You have, um, you have the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, which in the midst of their captivity oppressed God's people. They would have been very rich. They were also very unrighteous. And then you can move forward to the New Testament and you have the same thing. Men like Herod and, and, and Pilate and Caesar. Unrighteous, rich. And you go into the New Testament, same thing. You've got Ananias and Sapphira who are very wealthy and they, they say, oh, we're going to give this much to the Lord and they lied and God struck them down dead because they were unrighteous and they were, they were rich. And so I give you those categories because I want you to consider this. Which one best represents my life? I don't want us to think, okay, they're rich and they're poor because that's not the way the Bible thinks. The Bible thinks in terms not rich and poor, but righteous and unrighteous. So which one best represents your life, your understanding, your view of your money? And so Pastor James is getting at this idea of ownership and stewardship. And those are his bold words. And so as we jump into it today, here's what I believe. I believe that Pastor James is talking primarily to categories one and categories four. He's going to be speaking to the unrighteous rich and to the righteous poor. And so we're going to turn to James chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to dive in and we're going to get started. Here's what Pastor James says when speaking to his, his church. Come now, you rich. Now, I want you to notice the language here. okay? Because the language is very important. Over and over again, in the book of James, he's been saying this, brothers, that, that you're brothers, that we are sisters, that we've been adopted into the family of God that God the Father adopts us into this family, that Jesus is our big brother, that Jesus goes to the cross, He dies in our place, He reconciles us, He adopts us, He justifies us, and then we become sons and daughters, children of God, heirs in the kingdom of Christ. So that is our identity. James hits that over and over again, that your identity is that of a family. James doesn't say that here. James says, come now you who are rich. And I believe that James here is talking to a non-Christian. A non-Christian who is sitting in the church, who attends on a regular basis, but they are not a part of the family of God. And here's the reason why. Because their identity doesn't come from their righteousness, but rather from their riches. That they're trusting in something or someone other than their Savior. And so I ask you this. Where's your identity? What is it that determines your wealth? What is it that determines your value? What is it that determines the decisions that you make? Is it your riches or is it your righteousness? Where is your identity found? See, James says we're family. But if you're trusting in something or someone other than that, he's got some strong words for you today. 
So James starts off by saying, come now you who are rich. He goes on and says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It's pretty strong language, right? Weep and howl. This is some of the strongest words in the entire Bible. He wants you to recognize what it is that's, that's driving you. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Okay, James says, you know what? Everything that you loved, everything that you fought for, everything that you kicked and you scraped and you clawed and everything that you consumed, one day will consume you. Weep and howl. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, that your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. What does that sound like? What, is it, what do you think James is talking about? What does that remind you of? Eat your flesh like fire. He's talking about hell. He's saying, everything you loved, everything in this world, it will burn. And you can burn along with it. It will eat your flesh like fire, that you have laid up treasure in your last days. Here he's talking about the day of judgment, because the truth is, everyone will be judged. Not everyone will stand before God, the living and the holy God, the just God, and they're going to have to give an account for their account. Everyone will be judged, and we have to determine, how do we make our money? What did we do with our money? How do we spend our money? How do we live our life? How did we use our dollars and days? What did we do? How did we live? Because we will give an account. And so as you read through James, what you'll notice is James quotes Jesus a lot. And so um, if you were to take the book of James and you were to lay it side by side with the Sermon on the Mount, it would be very similar. Throughout the book, Jesus is constantly referenced and, and quoted through James. And so I want you to hold your finger right here in James chapter 5 and I want you to flip with me to Matthew chapter 6 and let's Let's see what Jesus says about this issue on the Sermon on the Mount. Because some of you right now, you're like, oh boy, this is pretty tough. This is pretty hard, right? Give me Jesus because I'm pretty sure Jesus, he's, he's very soft. He's very tender. Jesus would have something really nice to say, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? Well, let's see what Jesus says. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Huh, that sounds pretty familiar, right? Sounds like we just read that. It sounds like something that we've previously discussed. And, and so here's what, what Jesus is saying. Several years prior, Jesus is on the scene, and he's teaching, and he's preaching, and he's talking to people about God's expectations in regards to their wealth, in regards to their finances and their stewardship. Say, here's What's important? Here's what God desires of you. And then several years go by, and James comes along, and what he realizes is his church isn't heeding the teachings of Jesus. And so they rebuke him, or he rebukes them, rather, because of their greed. And so Jesus says, James says, look at your clothes. Look at what you're wearing. Look at the clothes that are in your closet. You have so many clothes, you're just buying new clothes. Meanwhile, your clothes are moth-eaten. They're being destroyed. And there are people who don't have any. doesn't seem like a good use of your clothing, does it? Consider your money that you've invested, you, you, you've fought for it, you've freaked out about it, you've stressed over it, and now you're building and building and building and building and it's rusting, it's corroding. doesn't seem like a good use of, of the money. You say, no, 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 wait. It's not rusting. I'm collecting interest. And Jesus would say, where your treasure is, your heart is. Are you trusting in your savings or are you trusting in your Savior? See, Jesus really gets to the heart of the matter. Jesus says, you can tell a lot about what someone loves if you follow the money. If, you're, if you ever wonder, what is it that I value? What is it that I love? What is it that I treasure? What is it, what is it that I want most in life? All you got to do is follow your bank account. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. See, Jesus knows this. He knows that the heart and the wallet are inextricably connected together. That where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And so some of us, we would say, well, I believe, I believe that we should care for the poor. Okay, prove it. Let me see your, let me see your bank statement. 
You say, I, I, believe that, I, I believe that people should be generous. Okay, prove it. Let me see your budget. How much money have you set aside to be generous? You say people should care for the poor. You say people should be generous. Okay, well, prove it. Let's, let's see your budget. Let's see your bank statement. I, I believe Jesus is Lord. I, I, I love Jesus. Prove it. Where your treasure is, your heart is. So let's, let's see. Now, some people are like, oh, no, 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 that, that's not fair. Right? Obviously, there's various circumstances. There's seasons in life, some situations. I mean, you can't expect me to, to be generous like that all the time, can you? Jesus said, yeah. Absolutely. See, when we begin to justify ourselves, we become like the Pharisees, we become like James Church, and to us, giving is hypothetical. Jesus would say, you're hypocritical. Because where your treasure is, your heart is. Because what you value is determined by where you put your money. You see what he's saying? So Jesus says instead, what we should do is we should store our treasures where? In heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy. Jesus says that anytime that you give, nothing's being taken from you. That you're investing somewhere that nobody can touch. That, that when you see somebody who's in need and you respond, you're storing your treasures in heaven. When you see somebody who's poor and you, you help and you love and you serve, then you're storing your treasures in heaven. When you, when you give, you're storing your treasures in heaven. When your heart and your wallet reflect the goodness, the graciousness, and the glory of God, Jesus says, you're storing your treasures in heaven. See, guys, here's the deal. When you die... None of this is going with you. Right? There's no U-Hauls on the back of hearses. It's not going with you. When you're dead, you're done. All of the big televisions, all the fancy cars, all of the, the stress and anxiety that you fought for your entire life, it's not going with you. And here's what Jesus is saying. That you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's the big idea. That you're not going to take it with you, but you can send it on ahead that we would be investing, we would be loving, that we would be serving, that we would be seeking the kingdom of God in our life. And this is very important. See, so often in our lives, we get so stressed, so consumed, so worried about this life that we don't think about the life that is to come. That, that we think about how much of this life can I enjoy on this side of eternity and we don't live for the eternity that is to come. Do you see the problem? This is what Jesus is teaching for His people. This is what James is teaching for His people. And this is something that I believe that we should all learn as the American church. Because we get so focused on the wrong side of heaven. There's a problem. So James continues. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept you back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, that you have lived on this earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, that you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter, it's pretty strong, and you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Some of your translations say, and he doesn't do anything about it. Okay? Now, as we hear this, it would be very easy for us to divorce the text from the context. For us to read this on a, cursor, on, a, on a cursory reading and say, okay, well, James says rich people are evil. Rich people are horrible. Rich people are wicked. Rich people are bad. Right? When you read this, that's, that's the way you could come across. And you can say, okay, well, the rich people are bad. And so that must mean the poor people are good. And so let's take the money from the rich. Let's give it to the poor so that there could be equality for everyone because rich people are evil. Rich people are crooked. Rich people are wicked. There's bodies buried somewhere. We're not sure yet, but I think they're there. Because we think politically. We think economically. We think socially. We don't think biblically. Okay, Is that what James is saying? Is James going to say today that it's a sin for us to be rich? No. So other people, they come to the other side and they say, no, wait. Okay, well, rich people are good and poor people, poor people are bad. Because poor people, they, they don't like to work. They're lazy. They don't want to get a job. They just want to take from the government. They don't want to actually, you know, do anything. And so, so poor people are bad and rich people are good because they earned it. They deserve it. They worked really hard. They, they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. That's the way that they live. Hey, rich people are good. Poor people are bad. Is it, is that what James is going to say? No. 
James isn't saying that's a sin to be rich, and he's not saying that it's a sin to be poor. James is getting at whether you, are you righteous or unrighteous. That's the question that James is getting at. So we need to be very careful that when we read this, we don't divorce it from the text. That we don't say rich people are bad because some people are wealthy because they're good stewards. That God trusts them with more because he knows that because they're good stewards, they're going to delegate his resources to those who are in need. And so some people are very rich and they're very righteous. And some of the most generous people that I know, they do pretty well. But I also know a lot of generous people who are also poor. And so we need to be very careful that we don't end up saying that God loves rich people or God loves poor people more than other people because it's not a matter of riches, it's a matter of righteousness. And so James isn't saying that's a sin for you to have a job. Not saying that. He's not saying it's a sin for you to pay your bills or buy a house or to take your wife out for dinner or to go on vacation. He's not saying that it's a sin for you to save for retirement because we talked about that last week, about planning for the future if the Lord wills. That's not what James is saying. Instead, he wants to know, are you using your riches in righteous ways? That's the big idea. So here's what's actually happening in James Church. There's two people. There's the landowners and then there's the laborers. Now the landowners, very rich, very wealthy, very very affluent, very important, very prominent because they're, they're the landowners. And then you have another group of people and they're called the laborers. That they would be poor. Both are sitting in the church, probably sitting alongside one another. And the landowners, they would, they would be, be very popular and they'd get you know, a lot of prominence and they would infiltrate in the church and they would hire the poor to come and work their fields. And so they would hire the poor, the poor would come, the poor would work a hard job, an honest day's work, a good day's wage, and they would you know, sweat, and they would blue-collar, working-class people, and they would, at the end of the day, not be paid. And so they would have to go home to their kids and to their wife, who had been home all day, and they would say, sorry, babe, can't feed you today. Sorry, kids, nothing to eat. Well, what's the matter, Dad? Didn't you work today? I did. Did you work yesterday? Yep, I worked yesterday too. I've been working all week. Well, why, why is there nothing to eat? Better get paid. You feel that? You see that? And so, one peoples are starving to death while the other is getting rich. They're living in luxury. They're driving their fancy cars, living in their big houses, watching their 4K televisions, going on their vacations, getting rich off of the broken back, the sweat, the blood, the tears of the poor. And so the women are crying, the children are weeping, and their cries are so loud that the Lord hears them. I want you to put yourself in James' situation for just a sec. First is this. Back in that day, there was no government, social security, welfare net for people to fall back on. Right? In our day, we could just go to the court and be like, hey, we're going to sue for back wages and labor's lost. You couldn't do that. In the Roman Empire, that's not the way that it worked. If you were poor, then you were destined to live a life of poverty. If you didn't work, you didn't eat. If you didn't eat, you died. That's the way that it, that's the way that it works. The only form of benevolence that there was, was the local church. And so if people in the church are treating people like this, there's a problem. So consider James' situation. James is a little brother of who? Jesus. It was Jesus rich or Jesus poor? He was poor. Yeah, so Mary, um, Jesus' mother, unwed, teenage, virgin girl. She She was poor. She was betrothed to a man named Joseph, also young, who was a construction worker. Very blue-collar guy, probably wore a Nomex, swung a hammer. He was a carpenter. So that's, that's Joseph. Joseph would have been poor. The Bible tells us they're from a town called Nazareth. Nazareth, a small, rural, hick town, maybe about 50 people. Think about it kind of like Deweyville. Like that's where Jesus was from. So rich or poor? Poor. So James, being the little brother of Jesus, upon hearing this, upon seeing what's happened in his church, there's a sense of righteous indignation that rises up within him. And he says, you know what? If my dad were to come into this church, you wouldn't pay him. You would send him back home to me, to my brothers, for them to starve to death. 
If my mom came to this church, you wouldn't provide for her. You wouldn't protect her. You wouldn't look after her. You would take advantage of her. If my brother, Jesus, the Lord, were to come into this church, then you would make him sit in the back. You would sit him on the floor. You would ignore him. You wouldn't let him in at the door. You would defraud him. You would rob him. You would rip him off. Do you see the problem? A lot of pain, a lot of problems happens when the church acts in unrighteous ways. And so James, James is a little upset. That's why James has such bold words for his church. And so James is going to teach us that there are three sins when it comes to our wealth. Before we get into this, here's something that I want to say in regards to our understanding of wealth. None of us in this room think that we're rich. Okay, go ahead, raise your hand. Are you rich? Anybody? See, that's what I thought. Nobody in this room thinks that they're rich. The reason being is somebody else is rich. Somebody else is always the rich one, right? It's the person who lives next door. You're like, Tom. Tom's loaded, right? Not me, Tom. Tom. You should see Tom's house. Tom's house is huge. He has two stories. I have one story. Tom's got a garage, right? Tom's got a new car. Tom, Tom's wife's always driving in new groceries in her car. I mean, Tom, Tom needs to be here, right? I don't think Tom's saved. Tom needs to come to church. Tom needs to see how bad he is. So let's bring Tom. The Bible's not talking about Tom. The Bible's talking about you. Anytime the Bible talks about the rich, it's talking about us. If you have... $20 in your pocket, and one pair of shoes to your name, then you're in the top 10% wealthiest people in the world. According to Global Rich List, if you make more than $30,000, you're in the top 1% wealthiest people in the entire world. Even the standard of living for the impoverished here among us is a standard of living that the poor across from the world only dream of. And so when it comes to the rich, don't think about the person across the street. Think about the person in the mirror. And so James is going to talk to us about the sins of our, of our wealth. And so first he says this. He says, you whore. He says, consider your clothes. They're moth-eaten. That you have so many clothes and you keep going and you buy new clothes and the clothes go out of style so you buy new clothes. You have clothes you haven't worn since the Bush administration and you keep buying new clothes and they're all just stored in your closet and they're being wasted. Meanwhile, there are people who are naked and freezing and there are mothers who winter's coming and they don't know how they're going to afford coats for their kids and it doesn't seem like a good use of your clothes he says consider your money that you, you work and you're investing and yeah you're you're striving and struggling and you're you're building and you're working on your portfolio meanwhile there are other people who don't know how they're going to feed their family that there are Men who are out of work or underemployed, not because they're lazy, but because they're hurt or because they got laid off and they just want to be able to provide for their family and they're sitting next to you in your community group and they're sitting next to you in your church and you walk past them every day and you never ask. Does that sound like the way that it's supposed to be? He says, we hoard and our houses are filled with food. We have entire rooms where we just keep food. They're called pantries. And our pantries are filled with food and then we, we, we go to our refrigerator and we open up our refrigerator and it's filled with food and then we look at it and we say, there's nothing to eat. And so we close it and we go to Sam's Club and buy pallets upon pallets upon pallets of food and we bring them back to our house and then a week later we have to throw it all away because it's expired. Does that sound like a good use of the food? While there's people who are starving and hungry and dying while we hoard. Now let's just be honest. In America, this is what we do. In America, we hoard. Okay, we fill our houses with so much junk that eventually we can't even store the junk that we have in our houses, so we have to pay somebody else to store all of our junk for us. Right? The storage industry pulls in about $30 billion a year. $30 billion. We're like, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. We'll just put it over here because I can't get rid of that you know, Xbox that I got in 2003 because maybe someday I'll need that again. And so hold this for me. We'll pay you $30 billion a year. Meanwhile, I looked it up. Do you know how much money it would cost for us to end world hunger? $30 billion. Just something to think about. So James starts off and says, you hoard. And the second he says, you defraud. That you refuse to pay people what they are worth. 
Okay, think penny-pinching, money, hungry, greedy managers. Okay? Now, that you own a small business or, or you have employers who work underneath you and you know that I can hire this job out and the fair wage is $15, but I could get away with paying them nine. And so they're going to work, they're going to do the job, we're going to underpay them, we're going to line our pockets, we're going to turn a profit, and we're going to get rich while they, while they work their jobs. James says, that's defrauding. Now immediately hearing this, some of you are going to think, well, I'm not a business owner, you know, I'm never going to, I'm not an employer, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, one, some of us are. Some of us do own our own business, some of us are employers, some of us are over other people in our work, and so this is actually very important for us as a church. And then on the other hand, Maybe one day you will be. I mean, isn't that the way, the reason that you go to college? So you can, so you can learn and so you can invest and so you can continue to grow in your career? Isn't that the reason why? Isn't that the reason why you work so hard at your job? So you can get that promotion, so you can move forward in your company? Isn't that the reason that we, that we look forward to the future? And so don't tune me out because one day you might. And then the second thing is this. Consider the people who serve you. In America, we live in a total service economy. Everywhere you go, people, people pour your cup of coffee, people wash our cars, people um, wait our tables, people cook our food. So we live in a total service economy. And oftentimes, the people who do that, they do so at the expense of their own health and their own family. I, I know a guy who, who has a full-time job and he delivers pizzas at night. He, he gives up his time with his family so he can be able to provide for them. And so when we, when we see people who are serving us, we need to honor them. And so I'll make this super practical for you. Okay, when you go out to eat after church today, tip. And don't just tip them you know, what the percentage says or, or what they deserve. Tip them what they're worth. See, Jesus says, treat others as you'd like to be treated. How about tipping others as you would like to be tipped? There's people who serve us. And we become like James Church when we refuse to acknowledge and honor the people who serve us. Because essentially what we're doing is we're stripping them of their dignity. They're defrauding. The number three says that you indulge. See, they, they make their money unethically, they save their money unethically, and then they spend their money unethically. And what I find amazing is that God is not only concerned with, with, how, you, with how you save your money, how you get your money, but God's also concerned with how you spend your money. He, he says that, that you fatten your hearts for the day of slaughter. Okay, sociologists call this conspicuous consumption. It's when you buy things not because of the functionality of the product, but the identity that it produces. That we don't buy things because they're the most economical. We buy things because of the identity that it produces in our lives. And to be honest, this is extremely convicting. See, our grandparents, they would try to teach us this when we were kids. Because our parents and grandparents had to make something called a sacrifice. And so they would try to teach us this lesson in regards to our money. And so I remember being a, a kid about eight or nine years old, had no concept of money. None. Like, are we rich? Are we poor? Are we middle class? I didn't know. Like, I just thought, I just thought, hey, there's some toys and there's some video games and there's, you know, candy and ice cream and Cokes. And we'd be walking through Target. I'm like, I need that. And my grandmother would get down. She'd look at me in the eyes and she'd say, is that a want or is that a need? Do you remember that? It's a very important lesson. It's something that we forget when we become adults, though, isn't it? We think, oh, well, I have the money, and oh, I have this job, and oh, hey, I could do this, and oh, look at that, and oh, look at this, and I'm going to buy this, and I'm going to do that, because I really, really, really want it. And then we forget, is it a want or is it a need? This is the reason that so many people are in debt. This is the reason, because you spend money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't even know. See, we don't buy things for the functionality. We buy things for the identity that comes along with it. We think, oh, if I, if I work this job or I drive this car, you know, people will think that I'm important. If I wear these clothes, then people will think that I'm attractive. If I go to these places with these people, then everyone's going to think that this is who I am and I can finally be the person that I always want to be. What determines the decisions that you make? Where is your identity? What are you looking for? What are you trusting in? You see? It's very convicting if we were to be honest with ourselves. Now listen, is it, a, is it a sin for us to have a television? No. Is it wise to have five in every room? Probably not. Is it a sin for us to wear pants? No. Thank God, right? Thank you for wearing pants. Is it a problem to spend $300 on a pair of pants? Eh, maybe. Is there wise ways we can spend our money? 
Yes. And that's what, that's what James is getting at. James is wanting you to consider the way you spend your money, the way you make your money, the way you save your money. And he doesn't want you to think in terms of, righteous, or of riches and poverty. He wants you to think in terms of righteousness and unrighteousness. And he says you indulge. I really like this. Um, as if the conviction wasn't strong enough. And so he says you indulge. You fatten your hearts. I want you to think about your money in regards of intoxication. Because that's what money is, right? Money can be intoxicating. That our view, our understanding, I need to have it, I want more of it, we get exhausted, we get anxious, we get consumed, thinking about what? About our money. It can be intoxicating. So think about this in indulgence. Think about it like food. Is it a sin to eat? No. Praise God. Is it a sin for us to overeat? Yes. We call that gluttony. Is it a sin to drink? No. Here at Redemption, we do not believe that it's a sin to consume alcohol. If your convictions or if your conscience doesn't allow you to, then for you it's sin. If you have a drinking problem, don't drink. That will lead to sin. If you're around somebody who has a drinking problem, don't drink because that leads to sin. But all across the board, is it? are you going to go to hell for consuming alcohol? We don't believe so. Is it a sin to get drunk? Yes. Is it a sin to spend money? No. Is it a sin to spend money in ways that are unwise? Don't glorify God. Yes. See, what James is getting at is really this massive theme of ownership and stewardship. And I don't have time to unpack all this today because it really is a mega theme throughout all the Scriptures. But I do want to address it just a little bit because I do feel like it is very important. There's a book um, by a man named Randy Alcorn. It's called The Treasure Principle. It's one of my favorite books. And I'll, I seriously suggest that all of you go and get it. It's about 80 pages. You could knock it out in an afternoon. And, and that book has really helped me understand the concept of, of stewardship. And actually, I have four copies with me today. And so if you are struggling in this area and you want to learn, I have four copies. Meet me at the Connect desk. I'll give you one because I believe it's that important for you. In addition to that, last year, around this same time, we taught a series called Every Good Work through 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where we pulled out 10 stewardship principles from the Apostle Paul. I would highly recommend everyone to go back and listen to that, especially considering that Christmas is coming up. We all know the greed and the, the consumerism and the materialism that happens around Christmas. We want you to be free when it comes to your money so you can be generous towards your family, you can be generous towards your friends and your church, and so you can really experience the joy of generosity for the Christmas season. So those are two resources I would recommend to you. But James is getting at this big idea of ownership and stewardship. Okay, And, and the first is the understanding of an owner. So I want to pull out a couple of principles from each one. So here's principles or mindsets from a person who has an ownership mentality. First they would say is this, I do not belong to God. Okay, they would say, well, this is my life. There is no God. There is no king. There is no Lord. And Jesus isn't Lord. And so I don't belong to God. I belong to me. And I can live my life however I want because it's my life. And I don't belong to God that I'm an autonomous being. I'm sovereign and that I'm in control of my own destiny. And so I do not belong to God. The second is they would say, nothing I have belongs to God. And they say, well, if I don't belong to God, and if there is no Lord, then everything that I have is mine. And nothing belongs to Him. So this is my job, this is my work, this is my career, this is my life. It's all about me, and nothing I have belongs to Him. Third, they'll say, I deserve what I work for. So I, I earned this, I deserve this, I made this, this is mine. And in life, there are winners and there are losers, and I happen to be a winner, sucks to be them, but you know what, I deserve what I, what I work for. Then fourth, they'll say, I only answer to myself. So there is no God, there is no Lord, there is no King, and I'm not going to stand before Him on some judgment day and have to give an account for how I live my life. And so I only answer to myself. And sure, maybe there might be a God, but if there is, then he'll probably think that I'm pretty special because everybody else thinks I'm a special and he'll probably think that I'm pretty great because look how successful I am. And so if there is a God, he'll be pleased with me because everybody else is. And at the end of the day, as long as I'm happy, I only answer to myself. That's the understanding of an owner. And now you might hear that and be like, whoa, right? That must be the atheist or that must be some totally depraved person, right? 
That's America. That's the way all of us think. That we have this idea that we're, we're owners. That we, we take, we don't give, we consume, we don't contribute, we're greedy, we're not, we're not generous. And we take this understanding, this idea, like that of an owner. And what, what Jesus wants us to have is the mindset of a steward. And so a steward thinks totally different than an owner would. So here's the four principles of, of stewardship. A steward starts here. I belong to God. Do you notice how, how different they are? They're different because they start in different places. See, the owner says, well, I don't belong to God, so therefore nothing I have belongs to God. A steward says, I belong to God, therefore everything that I have is His. He says, I belong to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says that you were purchased with a price. That Jesus' blood bought you back from your sins, that you've been redeemed, and now you belong to God. In addition, Romans 1 6 says that you are called to belong to Christ Jesus. This life is no longer yours. Like the moment you gave your life to Jesus, you gave him your life. Okay, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your wallet. It all belongs to him. So everything I have belongs to God. And then number three, everything that I have is a gift from God. James says in chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes down from where? From the Father. So our God is a father. He loves his children. He loves to give good gifts to his children. And so everything that we have comes from God because it is a gift. It's all a gift. And this causes an attitude of gratitude in God's people. That we would say, oh, hey, God, you know, thank you. Thank you for this car. Thank you for this house. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this family. Thank you for this job. And it creates an attitude of gratitude because it's a, it's a gift that God gives. And so often we get focused on we don't what we don't have. We miss out on what God has given us. Everything is a gift from God. And the number four steward knows this, that I will answer to God for how I managed his money. See, this is why I get so weird when people come up to me and they say, Pastor Byron, how much of my money should I give? I'm like, what? It's not your money. The question you should be asking yourself is this. How much of God's money dare I keep? It's a totally different question, isn't it? Because if it's your money, you can do whatever you want. But if it's God's money, well, then you're the manager. And you're responsible. You see that? And people will come up and say, well, I don't know. Um, should I tithe or should I grace give? And that's a, that's a big debate many people have. Do I practice the tithe or do I practice grace giving? And so... Here's the way I kind of think about it. Is as Christians, it's not 10%. New Testament Christians, it's 100%. That all of our life, all of our dollars, all of our days are invested to God. And so 10% is a good place to start. 100% is what God wants from your heart. And so it's God's money and we're going to be accountable for how we manage His, His money. See, a steward understands that. And that's the reason why here at Redemption... Every single week I say this. If you are not a Christian, don't give. If you're a guest here, don't give. Because we really don't want anything from you. We want something for you. We want for you to receive the grace of God. That all of this is a gift to you. The way we set up, the way that we tear down, the way we volunteer, the way we work with kiddos, the way our worship band plays, all of that, that's us using our gifts to be a gift for you. We just want you to receive Jesus. We want you to give your life to Him. That's what we want. And I have people come up to me every single week, and they're like, Iron, I've never heard a church say don't give. And I'm like, you know what? That's kind of sad. But I love that our church has that heart. Because we really do want you to meet Jesus. And all of this is a gift. However, if you call redemption home, and if you are a Christian, if you are a regenerate believer, then you have a responsibility that God has entrusted you as His people to care for the poor, to further the mission of God through the church. And you're accountable for that. You're responsible for that. And you will stand before God and you're going to have to give an account. And what Jesus wants you to know is this. You can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. And that's the reason this idea of ownership and stewardship is so important. But it's also the hardest lesson for us to learn. And I'll be completely honest with you. I am not perfect in this. But it is something that I practice. 
And it's something that I really did have to learn. And I think that's the reason that Martin Luther, the great reformer, says the last part of a person to get saved is their wallet. Because the wallet and the heart are connected. And that's why I get so amazed that many of you, young Christians, new Christians, just jumping into the church, and you just have such a heart to give. And right off the bat, you're like giving to the church. I'm like, man, that's amazing. Me? Not so much. And I, I've told you all my, my story about how I learned to trust the Lord. Um, but I'll tell you it again for a couple of reasons. One, there's a lot of new people here. And then two, some of you have forgotten. It'll be a good reminder. And so me and Ashley, we didn't do this. The first two years of being a Christian, I didn't give a dime to the church. Nothing. Become a Christian, sit in the same seat, sing the same songs, pass the plate, nothing. Didn't give. Now, when we got married, we were 22. Okay, we were dirt broke. We lived in a 200-square-foot apartment, paid like $400 a month for it. Um, it was bed bug infested, and we found our couch on the side of the road. Like, that's where we were at. We were, we were college, waiting tables full-time. We had no money. And, and so when we go to church, the, the plate would come, and I'd just pass it right along. I'm not going to do anything. Like, I'll take it from one hand to the other, nothing in the middle. And I would think, well, there's other people here who make more money than me. There's other people who have been a Christian longer than me. I'm sure the deacons or the elders in the church, I'm sure that they'll pick up the tab. And so I, I was perfectly fine to, to drink the coffee, but never to put anything in the middle. And, and so pass the plate, pass the plate. And then one day, I don't know what it was, but there was like a switch went off in my heart. And I was grieved because I realized that I was a consumer and I wasn't a contributor. I realized that I'm sitting in a seat that somebody else gave for that I'm worshiping in a building that somebody else gave to pay for. That I'm listening to a sermon from a pastor that loves me and that serves me and took intentional time to disciple me. And the church provides for our pastor and I don't, I don't do anything. And then I'm drinking the coffee that somebody paid for, sitting in a seat that somebody paid for. And every time that plate passed, I realized how selfish I was. See, I, I, I took, I didn't give. I consumed. I never contributed. And so I decided, you know what? I need to give. So we determined that day to learn how to give. Now, again, me and Ashley, college. Right? Nothing. Waiting tables. We're like, I don't know how we're going to do this. Because at the time, my pastor taught tithe. He said, tithe is what the Lord requires. The first 10% of your income before the government gets it, God gets it. That's the idea. First fruits at the beginning of the month. Give your tithe to the Lord. I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't believe that. And I didn't have enough faith for that. And so what we determined was, well, we'll give based on my Saturday shift waiting tables. And so I was like, well, I don't have enough faith to give, but whatever I make on a Saturday, that's what I'll trust the Lord for. And so Saturday came around, made about 40 bucks on a Saturday lunch. Next day, come pass a plate, drop it in the offering. I feel pretty good. I contributed. You know what? I didn't die. It's true. So the next week comes by, 30, 40 bucks, drop it in the offering, play goes by. Did this for about a couple of months and I'm starting to feel pretty good. I'm like, okay, cool. Like I'm giving and I'm, I'm serving and I'm investing and man, I really do love my church and I get to play a part in something bigger than myself. And what I noticed is that um, I only made about $300 a week waiting tables and I was given about 40 I went beyond the tithe. And I didn't even notice it, and it didn't even bother me. And I was like, hey, I can live on this. I can still take Ashley out for dinner. I can still pay my rent, and I still got money to buy groceries and to put money into the car for gas. Hey, this is, this is not too bad. Until I was scheduled to work a double. And I, I had to work a full day shift from the morning all the way to the night. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I worked all day and I made, kid you not, $200. Right? That has never happened before. And it never happened again after that. I made $200 in this day. And I go home and I'm like, Ashley, I made $200 tonight. She says, isn't this Saturday? And I'm like, no. Oh. And I was like, well, I'm sure God will understand. I'm sure he knew that, you know, in, in, in our uh, verbal contract, I said, God, I'm going to give you whatever I make on Saturday. He knew that I meant Saturday lunch. Obviously, he, he, he would understand. And Ashley's like, well, Byron, a deal's a deal. I'm like, ah, okay, I love you, babe. Thank you. 
she has faith for both of us. And so the next day, the offering plate was coming by, and, and I could feel it. So we did the thing, stood up, sang the song, listened to the sermon, okay, take communion, the offering plate's coming by, and man, my palms are sweaty. I'm clenching my fist. I'm clenching my teeth, white knuckles. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. What's going to happen? Because $200, that's, that's almost our rent. That's what I made in a, a week. Oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? The plate comes by. Ashley gives me the look. <sighs> Drop it in the plate. Pass the plate. And here's what happened. The God of greed died. The moment I trusted the Lord, the God of greed died and it was replaced with the generosity of God. Because generosity is how God kills greed. Generosity is the way that God kills greed. See, our God is not a taker. Our God is a giver. Our God gives. The Father heart of God is a generous heart. That God loves His children and God loves to give to His children. And so when we give, we reflect the heart of God. I'll prove it to you. I'm not sure why so many churches and so many people get upset whenever we talk about money because it's really not a money issue. It's really a heart issue with money implications. That God wants your heart. And where your heart and your wallet are connected is where your treasure is. And, and I'll prove it to you. God responds to the cries of His people through generosity. Everybody's favorite Bible verse. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He what? He gave. God gives. That God gives His Son Jesus. That God gives us the Holy Spirit. That God gives us the Bible. That God gives us the church. That God gives us the people. That God gives us Himself. Our God is a generous God. He's gracious. He's good. He's generous. So I want you to think about it. What is it that God has given you? Think about it. What is it that you have that God has blessed you with? See, we've been blessed to be a blessing. So what is it that God has given you? And then I want you to consider, what is it that God is asking you to give? Because if the generosity of God doesn't reflect generosity in you, and there's something wrong in your heart. So just consider, what is it that God has given you? God gave you Jesus to die for your sins, to, to save you. God's given you the Holy Spirit to encourage you, to empower you, to, to lead you. God's given you the church to walk alongside of you. God's greatest gifts sometimes are the people that we're sitting next to. God's given you grace. See, God didn't have to give you grace. It's not like you earned it or anything. It's not like you did anything to deserve it. He gives it to you freely. That God gives you salvation. God gives you redemption. God gives you hope. God gives you mercy. God gives you love. See, the gifts of God aren't cheap. They're costly. They cost Jesus everything so that in Him we can have the only thing that matters. Grace. So God becomes poor in the man of Jesus so that we come rich through the work of Jesus. That on the cross, Jesus takes our sin, gives us His sinlessness, and that He takes our unrighteousness and He gives you His righteousness. So as Christians, does the God of the Bible have any right to speak to your wallet? Yes. Only if you're a Christian. Because it's not our wallet anymore. That God is the owner, we're His stewards, that He has entrusted us to share the Gospel with the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Jesus. The greatest gift we could receive. Lord, thank You for the Holy Spirit to empower us, to lead us. A beautiful gift for us. Thank You for the Bible that teaches us who you are and how we are to live with this amazing gift you have. Thank you for the church, these people that you have given us to walk with us, to love us, to care for us in our times of need. Father, let us be a generous people because you are a generous God. 
Lord, lead us and guide us to see the needs around us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to respond. If you guys will stand with me, there's a couple of ways we can respond. Underneath your chair right now, there is a, there's a card that says, what has God given me? What is God asking me to give? I would highly encourage you to talk with your husband, talk with your wife, teach your children this, get together in a community group or with a friend, fill that card out. What has God given me? And then this week, what is God asking me to give? And then we're going to, to worship because worship is, worship is the way in which we, we give to the Lord. That we're giving back to the Lord. What is it? That's what it means to worship, that we give back to the Lord. So we're going to raise our hands, we're going to sing, we're going to worship this God who has been so generous towards us. And then we're going to come forward for prayer. We have a prayer team on this side. We have a prayer team on that side. Maybe where you're at today, you've been trusting in the wrong thing. And so you want to give your life to Jesus. So come forward and give your life to Jesus. Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're strapped or maybe you're anxious or maybe you're worried. Our team would love to pray for you. Maybe you just need somebody to hug or somebody to talk to. Our team would love to pray for you. So please come forward. Don't white knuckle your seat. Don't go through life with clenched fists and, and clenched teeth. Come forward and please pray. Then we're going to take Holy Communion. We have communion stations available in the back. We take communion here every single week as a remembrance of what God has given us through Jesus. That God in Christ was broken on our behalf so that we can receive His grace. And when we do, we're partaking and remembering the Lord Jesus. We're also experiencing His Spirit with us proclaiming his name until the day he returns. And then we're going to give of our tithes and offerings. And we're going to trust that Jesus is our Savior and not just our savings. That Jesus is greater than our stuff so that more people can meet Jesus because a generous heart reflects the heart of God. So we're going to worship, we're going to sing, we're going to give, and we're going to pray. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption and we would love to meet you.